Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the awesome Yamaha YZF-R7. The R7 is an amazing super sport machine and it's comfortable too. Check out the YZF-R7 at your local Yamaha dealer or, of course, at yamahamotorsports.com. In this week's first segment, senior editor Nick DeSena goes to the Yamaha MT-10 launch. I have to say, the R1-derived MT-10 is one of my all-time favourite street bikes. It's the perfect balance of instant usable power and it's crammed into an agile yet stable chassis. All that is built into an incredibly easy to ride package. <laughs> and I'm not even going to mention its ability to wheelie. <laughs> the latest MT-10 has had some upgrades, so I'm very curious to hear what Nick thinks. For our second segment this week, I chat with Paul Jason, aka The Motorcycle Broker. Paul has been restoring, collecting and selling investment-grade motorcycles and cars for several decades. His knowledge and passion for the art of motorcycling seems pretty much unrivaled. Paul's quest for total authenticity and his insistence on a breathtaking level of detail is incredible. Actually, one of his restorations, a classic MV Agusta, won at Salon Privé in 2018. Paul's take on how the motorcycle market developed globally and where it's going, I found absolutely fascinating. You can visit Paul's website at themotorcyclebroker.co.uk. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully-fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at yamahamotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. I have to say, I'm really looking forward to this one. The uh, Yamaha MT-10 is one of my all-time favorite motorcycles. I just absolutely love it. I've never ridden it on track, but love it on the street. And I'm curious to hear what the new changes are. Yeah, I've actually never ridden one on the racetrack either. I've only ridden it on the street. Or, oh, have I? I know YCRS uses MT-10s a lot. I think I may have ridden one with them one time, but yeah, they do. I mean, they're eminently suitable, but obviously compared to pure super sport bikes, they're a little soft on the track. 
but that that little bit of softness on the track makes them perfect on the street as far as i'm concerned that that does kind of get to the the crux of the yamaha mt10 it's never really been positioned as a pure track focused machine and if we look at a lot of the european naked bike competitors say something like the ducati street fighter v4s aprilia tuono factory uh, triumph uh, speed triple 1200 rs or in some way maybe even the bmw s1000r and definitely the ktm 1290 super duke r those motorcycles are really trying to push performance and uh in the sake in, in the case of the ktm the triumph the aprilia and the ducati especially where you're looking at extremely high uh horsepower and torque figures along with motorcycles that have been migrating towards what i'd argue are their ancestral homelands of the racetrack um, especially when we look at things like the ducati street fighter v4 and the aprilia tuono which for all intents and purposes are their super bikes that stumbled upon a set of handlebars. Um, so they're really not uncompromising in any capacity. It is this a full Zoot super bike with a set of handlebars on it. Now the MT-10 has always taken a slightly different approach. And I think an approach that really makes it a much more well-rounded motorcycle when you compare it to some of those more extreme bikes, which have their place. And as much as I love those bikes, the MT-10 is a little bit more real world. It's, it's a bit more well-rounded in the sense that I can foresee someone commuting on this. There's touring applications as well. You can go and rip around in the canyons with, you know, all of the sporting zest that you'd get out of anything else on the market. And then the occasional track day isn't exactly out of the cards as well. And above all, you have comfort. So for 2022, Yamaha has really tried to maintain that status quo. And that's one of the things that's made this bike incredibly popular. And so they've really just kind of sweetened the pot with you know, a handful of uh, styling tweaks, which I would say it did need because you know running about you know, six-ish years on the market. It is getting a little bit long in the tooth in terms of its looks. And then, you know, there's a slight ergonomic tweak to talk about, but the big thing here, um, you know, it's going to be the IMU supported electronics that are derived from the Yamaha YZF-R1 Euro 5 compliance, which actually has some positive benefits for us. And then a couple suspension tweaks, little brake update, and some improved rubber that is on this bike. So that about sums up the changes for 2022, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Okay, sounds good. So we are in Asheville, North Carolina. Okay. Um, you know, just right outside the Blue Ridge Mountains, and of course, the Blue Ridge Mountain Parkway, which we did explore. Now, that said, uh, not to get too off topic, but... The Blue Ridge Mountain Parkway is a nice, extremely scenic route, but the roads surrounding that area and in the Blue Ridge Mountains are, I would say, some of the best in the United States. We are a bit spoiled in California and Southern California specifically, but if you live in that area, you have some good riding, um, you know, ride at your feet. And that kind of sets the stage for where we were. So we've got a lot of 
you know, a, a good mix of everything. Some really high speed stuff, fast sweeping roads like the Blue Ridge Mountain Parkway. Um, and then much, much more tight technical, I'd say some pretty tricky riding that was really engaging. And those are sort of at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of sport riding. Then we also hit, you know, your average commutes. Um, North Carolina is what I'd consider to be an unenlightened state that have not seen the path to um, lane splitting, which is a shame. Damn shame. Yeah. And so yeah. we did have to tolerate, uh, you know, that with some traffic. So we got kind of the the full breadth of what you'd experience on a on a naked bike, just riding it in normal conditions. Um, but yeah, that that's just setting the stage here. So I guess where I want to start with is the engine as most people want to start with with bikes of these nature or this nature sure i mean the engine was always extraordinary i mean it's obviously r1 derived a little retuned but essentially um it, that cross-plane motor provides that amazing low down torque that is so addicting on the street has anything really changed with that uh, a couple things here and there you know as you mentioned before it is derived from the YZFR1. So the main changes and and one of these sort of taglines for this is is that it's a detuned version. I I wouldn't say it's detuned. I would say it's built for the purpose and repurposed. And they they did a handful of tweaks that really fit its street um, application. So the R1 uses things like various titanium internals as titanium con rods, valves, et cetera, et cetera. Those are really essential for high revving superbikes that make most of their power at the top end. And for street application, you can get away with using steel connecting rods, steel valves. And that actually adds a little bit of weight and inertia into the internal components and actually helps build more low and mid-range power. It does sacrifice top ends, but when we're talking about riding on the roads, that doesn't really matter because it's all lost on the roads anyway. You're never accessing that, that area of the RPM band to begin with, at least not something that we'd be willing to publicly admit. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's built for the purpose. It, it is, it's not a detuned R1 engine, it's a repurposed R1 engine. And that's really what you're looking for when we're talking about a naked bike anyway. So as you mentioned before, yes, still has all that low and mid-range power. I'd say the mid-range is the standout characteristic. And, you know, it's funny because Yamaha really touts, you know, it, it's, it's main power band between 4,000 and 8,000 RPM. And this is one of the few times where I can't really agree, disagree with the marketing literature right there. They're, they're being dead honest with you. You know, you have tons of mid-range power that's just right there constantly and that that makes it pretty suitable when you're cruising around town because you're always just kind of bopping around in those lower gears and you know the bike's always kind of hovering in that four to six range anyway when you're just sort of putting along and when you start wicking it up well you never really exceed 8,000 rpm anyway and and it just makes it to where you have something that's always there, always just has some good thrust wherever you need it. And it's really engaging. Now, we haven't talked about any of the changes either. And that really is sort of spurned by 
Euro 5 compliance and things like that. And usually that comes with a, a little bit of an asterisk or a bit of a tinge in our voices when we talk about these things. And I think Yamaha has done a really good job here and proven the fact that they are the tuning fork brand with a, a history in, in music. Um, so, <laughs> you know, to accentuate the sort of uh, listening pleasure and, uh, you know, the cross-plane configuration, in my opinion, is probably one of the best sounding engines in motorsports, you know, right up there with the RSV4. My personal opinion is that these, these sounds need to be protected and uh, inducted into the Smithsonian for a matter of record, but uh, <laughs> probably a little dramatic. At any rate, they've employed a new air intake system. Um, so that's done a handful of things here. One, the air scoops, the forward-facing air scoops that are on the 4.5-gallon fuel tank, those are actually active. If we think back to prior generations of the MT-10, they were just there for styling purposes but these actually work. Cool, good news there. Now, what starts affecting us in our experience is the fact that the new Airbox uh, uses an uneven length triple duct design. So that's done for a couple purposes. One, it's gonna help fueling, things of that nature, um, just kind of improve smoothness and everything. And it is a tick above smoother or, or a tick smoother in comparison to prior generations. But the important thing here is that there are these acoustic grills atop the fuel tank. And it's kind of funny because you can actually look down into the, the airbox area, um, which is something that I can't really say of many other motorcycles uh, in recent memory. But what that does is it actually allows you to hear more of the intake howl and more of the engine. And if we think about Euro 5 standards and DOT emission standards, you know, noise is becoming more and more and more of a problem for bikes to, and cars for that matter, to, to um, you know, meet compliance with, right? Well, in this case, sure. you get that, you know, cross-plane sounds, that awesome intake howl, and even with earplugs in, you can hear it just clear as a bell. And to me, that just kind of makes this thing sound exciting constantly without being obnoxiously loud. Um, another, another change, I guess, in the name of emissions is an updated exhaust system. It's gone from two catalyzers up to four. Um, for our purposes, that really doesn't change much. It does add a bit of weight. Uh, so overall weight from year to year, from 21 to 22, has increased a handful of pounds not by much, and it's all distributed to the lowest point of the motorcycle. Um, I'd be hard pressed to say that's gonna have any perceptible difference on the handling um, or anything else for that matter, but it is there. And I'm just stating that as a matter of record. Now, the fact is this cross-plane motor, like I mentioned before, just sounds brilliant. And that kind of covers the changes on that end. There's one other change that's loosely related to the engine um, and they've gone to a slightly longer final drive gearing uh, so all they did is go to a smaller rear cog they ditched one tooth that's had a couple different uh, little little tweaks and changes there or impacts I should say um, you know bikes in this class aren't exactly known for their fuel economy 
Um, looking at you, Ducati Street Fighter V4S and Aprilia Tuono. And of course, the MT-10 was in good company at the pumps. Um, you know, fairly thirsty bikes, you know, claimed MPG for the 2021 model was uh, uh, 30. And now thanks to this gearing change, it's jumped up to 36. And we are talking about a 4.5 gallon tank. So if you do the quick math on that, you can get a theoretical 162 miles out of that fuel tank. Now, realistically, for how fun the MT-10 is and pretty much every other bike in this class, I'd be hard pressed to actually achieve that theoretical MPG. <laughs> yeah. It's probably not gonna happen. But Yamaha did hear the cries of the market and did something to alleviate some of those, those needs. The reality is we're talking about a, a leader bike engine that has some serious performance behind it. Um, Yamaha in North America does not cite horsepower and torque specifically. However, with the power of the internet, we can travel to Yamaha's European subsidiary and understand that we're talking about an engine that makes somewhere in the claimed figures of um, about 160-ish horsepower and around 82 foot-pounds of torque. So again, not up there with some of those extreme naked bikes like the Ducati Street Fighter V4S and Aprilia Tuono, KT uh, 1290, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not really what it's going for either. And it's, you really got to keep that in mind because this, this power and how you can apply the power, that sort of sets it apart from the rest of the herd. There's a couple other things that I'm going to come back to that idea with as well, but that's one of the main things. It's plenty of power on the street, as you know, um, and you can actually have fun with it. So that's the important thing. Yeah, the street isn't about peak horsepower. It's about usable horsepower. And I think that's what's made the MT-10 so addicting, and especially to a rider like myself, where it's, we'll get onto the handling in a minute, but the bike is so well-balanced um, that you can really use the horsepower that it puts out. And I think anyone that gets, gets too caught up in, well, you know, it's, you know, 20 peak horsepower down on thus and such a bike is missing the whole point. The MT-10 is supremely easy to ride um and so it's it's easy to ride fast and and that's why why it's such a good street bike um and and the engine obviously is a major major contributing factor to that yes exactly and you know as i mentioned before it's you know peak horsepower it, it's not the star of the show here and and talking about the rest of the japanese ar argument or offering sorry um, you're looking at the Suzuki GSX S1000, uh, Kawasaki in the North American market. The closest thing we would have is something like the ZH2. Um, that's supercharged. That makes some serious power in a much different way. And then you have Honda's uh, CB1000R, uh, which, you know, if, if I'm honest, the Yamaha kind of makes the most sense when looking at the the Japanese offerings, and that's comparison test, you know, sight unseen, really. You, right. you really want to start making those statements and with a comparison test backing you. But having experience with those bikes, MT-10 is looking pretty promising. Now, when you compare it to the European stuff, 
it is a different bird altogether. And so the, the conversation just simply changes. But this does sort of lead us into the main big update, which is the electronics. Okay. The last time you rode the MT-10, I think that was in its debut year, uh, back in 16. And at the time, it did come with, you know, ABS, traction control, but they were all, we'll say, rudimentary uh, in nature. Used wheel, wheel speed sensors and preset limits, you know, to keep everything in line, we'll say. Now, with the recent update to the YZFR1, uh, more things have trickled down from Yamaha Superbike. That includes its, its electronics. So by and large, it has everything that an R1 has in terms of rider aids. That means we have IMU-supported electronics. So you get cornering ABS, uh, lean angle lean detecting traction control, slide control, engine braking management, wheelie control. Um, you don't get launch control, but again, street bike, you don't need it. And then there are a couple other little cool features as well that we'll talk about in just a minute. You have cruise control, street bike, and then you have a new feature, Yamaha variable speed limiter, um, which it does exactly what it sounds like, but there is some explanation there. And now you have an up-down quick shifter. These are all new to the platform as well as a true ride-by-wire throttle. Um, before it was ride-by-wire, but there was still a cable aspect to it that went to the throttle body. Now it's purely electronic. But yeah, getting into the electronics. You're presented with four riding modes, A through D. Um, and while they do have presets that are uh, installed in them, it's a fully customizable riding mode. So you can essentially do whatever you want. And to me, that's pretty awesome. Now you have your power modes, levels one through four, one being the most aggressive, four being the least aggressive. And there actually is a notable step between each mode. For my money, I really liked uh, power mode one. And thinking back to the previous generation, this is probably the biggest step forward in terms of the riding experience for me. I know it's a weird thing to sort of harp on, you know, uh, throttle modulation and throttle control, but some of the earlier ride-by-wire applications that Yamaha had, um, they could be a little bit notchy. You could describe them as a bit snatchy, especially going back to like the 15R1. In this case, even in the most aggressive mode, yes, it's definitely aggressive, which that's what it's designed to be. It's designed to be the sportiest of the lot you still get a very smooth throttle application. It's not too harsh and you can pick up the gas, you know, mid-turn, do throttle corrections, line corrections, things like that without kind of getting bit by the throttle. Um, level two, I would say that's a really happy medium for that's, that's going to be popular for a lot of riders out there. Level three definitely takes the edge off quite a bit. And then four is your de facto rain mode. Um, and then as we kind of go through the other, the other features here, traction control, slide control. Again, we were riding on the street. Yes, we did encounter some damp patches because we were in the south. There were some rainstorms before we were riding. And, um, you know, in those tree-covered areas, we would face some damp patches. But realistically, between the mechanical grip that you get on the chassis and the tires and everything else, and just knowing not to push in those sections, I didn't really bother the TC 
or slide control for any appreciable amount. I mean, I felt TC kicking a couple times in the damp. So it worked as I wanted to, and it worked in the settings that I had it in. When I had it in lower settings, it stepped in um, only when necessary. In the higher settings, it was a little bit more conservative as predicted. Um, now, the main thing you guys are gonna wanna hear about is the wheelie, wheelie control. There are three settings. The third, nothing is gonna come up. It's, uh, you know, the most conservative of the bunch. Two, you can just get a little hover and then level one actually might be sort of a, uh, you know, a wheelie Wednesday worthy Instagram photo. <laughs> you definitely up front if you needed to. Right. Um, but kind of going back to the tractability and rideability of that engine, you know, you're dealing with some serious performance here, I would say. And even if you totally kill wheelie control, it's not going to be this unrideable beast. You can still you know, flog it as you, as you like. And yeah, the front end is going to come up, but you can easily control it. Again, it's going to come back to the improved uh, throttle control and throttle, mod throttle modulation from the, the new uh, completely ride-by-wire mechanism that they have at your right wrist. And the fact that this engine is just good. So that's kind of that in a nutshell. Um, moving on to some of these other electronic features that I definitely want to talk about. Now you have that quick shifter up and down, works great both directions. Cruise control, everyone knows what that is. But the Yamaha variable speed limiter is a different thing. It works essentially like a pit lane limiter. And, you know, that's derived from stuff like the R1. Makes sense, right? Now, in other markets where speed cameras and things like that are becoming more and more pervasive, customers in those markets have asked for this speed limiter. So you set your topmost speed, you can roll the throttle on to the absolute stop and the bike will accelerate like the Dickens towards that number. As it approaches, it'll curtail power and then just hold at that specific number. Now it works differently from cruise control in that it does not hold at that particular mile per hour. It just accelerates to that mile per hour. So say you're coming up on a speed camera, it has a particular speed limit set that's defined you dial into that, that uh, speed limit and you can just hold the thing pinned until you finally disable it. And then as you do on MT10s, go and wheelie into the sunset and you know do as you do. Okay, so in other words, you can set the speed limit that you want to, want to reach and it will not exceed that. Correct, correct. But it does not intimidate acceleration to that speed. No, no, it, it starts curbing power, I would say probably maybe like five or six miles an hour before you get to your set speed limit. So it, it's kind of an interesting feeling because you'll dial it in and then say you're just riding down the road. You'll whack the throttle wide open and the bike accelerates just as it normally would. Yeah, everything's cool, MT10, it's all happening. And then yeah, 50 miles an hour <laughs> or whatever you said it. And, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's just kind of a weird feeling. And, Cruise control can sort of do something like that. Okay. So what do you uh, what do you think of the chassis? Is have they changed anything with the chassis? Still got the same KYB suspension? Yes, there's there's a minor change in terms of just fiddling with internal settings. 
or at least that's how it was described to us from Yamaha staff. But yes, we still get the same fully adjustable KYB suspension. Um, and again, that's R1 derived. And importantly, you have adjustment on each fork leg. Um, so that's rebound and compression on each leg, as well as preload, obviously. And then the shock is fully adjustable. Now, out of the stock settings, they say they've increased preload by about three mil. And naturally, that'll kind of kick the bike up on its nose, just that extra sniff. Um, there's really no big changes between previous generation MT-10 and the current generation MT-10. So it's still the same uh, Delta box aluminum chassis and swing arm. But because of those slight suspension changes and the fact that we've gone to a shorter uh, rear tooth, that's also elongated the wheelbase just, just a touch, just a few millimeters. But kind of the interesting thing, you get on the MT-10 and it feels like a proper, you know, liter size motorcycle. Oddly enough, it actually has a wheelbase that's roughly an inch shorter than the MT-09. So it, that's kind of retains its, its agility and, and things like that. Um, you know, I, if I had to, you know, really kind of zero in on the, on the bike's handling, the one thing about this chassis is, is you mentioned before is balance. Um, it, it really reminds me of the modern Triumph motorcycles in that regard, where I can't exactly say that the MT-10 is the most quick-footed or nimble motorcycle in the class overall, um, but it's not slow by any means or any stretch of the imagination. And what that does translate to is a bike that's incredibly friendly to ride. It tips in beautifully, get a lot of mechanical grip, which translates to trust at either end of the motorcycle. So if you're trail braking into corners, accelerating, you know, nice and hard out of, out of corners, you can really trust what's underneath you. And it's not a pain to ride. It doesn't take a ton of effort to get the job done. And so chassis wise, I think they've done a pretty excellent job in that regard. Yeah, they always did. It was, uh, it's one of those bikes that, you know, you feel instantly comfortable on. Everybody seems to say the same thing, or certainly of, of my friends that have ridden them. What about the, uh, the brakes? Anything changed there? Uh, yes, they did update to Brembo Master Cylinders front and rear. Uh, still running the same Advix four-piston calipers, 320-millimeter rotors in the front. Um, you know, it, it is a step up from the prior generation uh, Master Cylinder. And we do get a fancy little, you know, smoked um, brake reservoir. Now, I would say it's tough for me to really compare brake feel to the prior MT-10 because it's been quite a while since I rode it. I would say probably four, four years and change. So what I'm going to talk about here is what I felt on this particular bike. Now, yes, Brembo stuff is a step up just in terms of bragging rights and things like that. I would say that they've definitely taken a street positioning, which reinforces the street message here. The, the bite is not super aggressive. It's not as, uh, I would say, sharp as the R1 can be. And for this bike's purposes, that's a good thing. Now, for my personal preferences, 
I might want a little bit more attack when I'm first applying the brakes. And to me, that matches the overall performance of the engine and what this bike is capable of. That's not to say that these brakes are bad. There's plenty of power. You can haul this thing to a stop instantly when you need to. I just think that you could take another little step in that, that aggressive direction and you'd be quite well suited. Now, and just to you know, kind of go for the record here, the MT-10 SP, um, let me confirm that real quick. Yes, the MT-10 SP does have a couple upgrades. It has semi-active bowling suspension and with the braking in particular, it uses steel braided brake lines while the standard MT-10 uses rubber. Now, would that fix the situation here? Maybe, not entirely sure. That's a verdict that I've yet to uh, come to as I haven't ridden the MT-10. Now, knowing steel braided brake lines as I do, I know they will help. And I think they'd help in this regard as well. That said, kind of spending a lot of time on the brakes that, that work more than adequately. They, it's, it's not just a matter of getting the job done as we often say about things that, that get a resounding C plus score on the, on the, the old report card. It's, these brakes work well. I just want a little bit more attack out of them because I think it fits the personality of the bike. That said, Yamaha puts a lot of effort on creating systems that appeal to a broad spectrum and the brake feel, the attack of the brakes, I think a lot of people will be able to agree with them, whether you're on the more sporting side or someone that might be using this as sort of the occasional weekend warrior type machine or, you know, a commuting machine. So it can fit and fill a lot of different roles. Okay. Um, comfort. It can be used as a sport touring machine, cruise control. So um, have they changed anything with the ergonomics at all? Yeah, just, just a hair. Um, seat height overall has increased something like 10 millimeter. That's a little under a half inch or so. And there's also a new subframe. Um, so looks and comfort do kind of go hand in hand when we, we talk about this. So starting with the looks, there's a new subframe because they wanted to sort of trim the fat off the MT-10 and kind of make it uh, a little bit more muscular, a little tighter, and sort of shorten its overall profile. Um, you know, there's a new headlight design, LED lighting all around, some little trims to the plastics and things like that. You know, realistically, the bike kind of looks the same from sort of the middle down, but the new headlight, the new, uh, you know, sort of uh, fly screen fairing situation, a couple little tank fairing bits, and the subframe all do change uh, the, the aesthetics of the bike. Now, increasing that seat, seat height by about a half inch, and it's less than a half inch, it's actually 0 0.39 inches. Um, that's raised the bike up a little bit. I stand at five foot 10 inches. And overall, I was able to still get my boots on the ground, talk to some shorter riders that were with me. They were able to, to reach the deck. So the reason they've increased the foam is twofold. One, they wanted to make the bike a little more comfortable. Thinking back to the prior generation, and I do actually remember this, seat was pretty soft. 
And at first, that can be pretty comfortable. The first hour or two you're writing, you're like, oh, okay. And then you start kind of putting a lot of weight on your tailbone and it can actually become taxing. So they've increased the, the foam thickness and they've also increased the foam density. So you're getting more support. Now the handlebars haven't changed at all. The foot positioning hasn't changed. The other minor tweak is that they've slimmed up the, the bodywork around the fuel tank. And that's just sort of trimmed the bike up just a hair. Um, so those are the only ergonomic changes, but really if you're to ride them back to back, you might notice a little bit of a change. Overall, kind of the same beast that we're dealing with. And that that's one of those things that I mentioned before where between the engine performance and how it's applied to the street and then the comfort levels that you're dealing with and the foot positioning, you know, the footrests are a bit lower than say things like the Tono or Street Fighter V4S or even KTM Super Duke. Um, you know, it's definitely the more street oriented motorcycle. So if you were to start ripping around on a track day, yeah, you might be hitting your foot pegs a little earlier than some of the other bikes, but screw it. You're going to be able to ride home after the day and pop that, that, uh, that top case on and, and go home, you know, with a, without any cramps or anything like that trouble free. Um, so yeah, there's some trade-offs in the extremes, but as a street bike, I would say you're pretty golden. All right, terrific. So all in all, um, it sounds like the changes are, you know, subtle, but, but, uh, but worth it. And sounds like the MT-10 is going from strength to strength. Yeah, it's, it's definitely improved in a handful of little ways that all sort of stack up. So I would say comfort is just that extra sniff there. Um, for me, adding the electronics and the advanced electronics that you're getting from the R1 okay. uh, really, really translate well uh, to a street bike, you know, because you're, you're going to be riding in different situations and all of these things just have much more nuance than, you know, less advanced systems. Um, and for me, the big takeaway is just throttle sensitivity. It's just so much better. So that's, that's a big takeaway. Then of course we have the auditory things that Yamaha really wanted to showcase with, with the MT-10. To me, as much as I love hearing a, a, a cross-plane engine with a full exhaust engine on it or full, ex, full exhaust system on it, almost inclined not to do it on a bike like this if I were to own one, just because it sounds good. I mean, I really like Toprak Razgatli Aglu and wish I could brake like him and also want all of my motorcycles to sound like his, but <laughs> those little acoustic grills kind of, kind of do the trick. Although I, I say all this and then if I owned one, I'd probably still put a full system on it. Um, so whatever. Um, another little change is like, yeah, the, the chassis is more or less the same, but there are, there are some new, new, uh, new tires on it. We went to the, uh, Bridgestone Battle Axe S22 tires. It's a really good all around sport, sport tire. Um, that really improves confidence. Um, and a, a nice little touch, you know, beyond the, the cyan blue wheels with a little red stripe, which I think looks awesome. Um, you have a 90 degree uh, valve stems. So instead of vertical valve stems, they jet out to the side. 
makes it way easier to check your PSI. Like every brand should do this. It's, it's great. So, you know, that, that's, that's kind of summing up the changes. Um, you know, but yeah, for $13,999, that's the base price for the base MT10. And then the, the MT10 SP that we briefly mentioned earlier is a bit more expensive, but again, comes with those upgraded uh, steel braided brake lines and the semi-active suspension. And that's gonna set you back $16,899. Again, remember the goodies that's, that, that are coming in with that bike. And there are a couple more that I didn't mention because, well, we didn't review that bike. So too bad. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> okay. All right. Well, it sounds like the MT10 is, is better than ever. So uh, I can't wait to ride the new one. Sounds good. All right. Hey, thanks a lot, Nick. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. In this, our second segment this week, I chat with Paul Jason, AKA the motorcycle broker. Paul has been restoring, collecting and selling investment grade motorcycles and cars for several decades. His knowledge and passion for the art of motorcycling seems pretty much unrivaled. Paul's quest for total authenticity and his insistence on a breathtaking level of detail is incredible. Actually, one of his restorations, a classic MV Augusta, won at Salon Privé in 2018. Paul's take on how the motorcycle market developed globally and where it's going, I found absolutely fascinating. You can visit Paul's website at themotorcyclebroker.co.uk. Nice t-shirt. She rides an MV Augusta Tarly. Oh, nice bike. Nice bike. It's a really nice bike. We, we uh, won Salon Privé last year with uh, an MV Augusta 750 Sport from 1974 that we restored. So I'm a big fan of MVs. I like the old ones. Yes, yes, yes. Beautiful. If ever you find yourself out in the States, my, uh, my best friend has an incredible motorcycle collection really? here in California. He's up to nearly 180 motorcycles now, but he's got some lovely MVs. Really? Yeah, but uh, one of his, uh, you'll know more about it than I do. I think it might be a, it's probably a 77. Is it the Sport America? Yeah, yeah, it's the America. I think it's the America, yeah, yeah. Sort of un unfaired, unfaired, you know, red frame, uh, sort of blue and white striped tank. 
Oh no, that's the 74. That's that's the um sports, like the one we won Salon Breve. And it's got a beautiful tank on the top, it sort of goes out like that. It's gorgeous. Yes, yes, yes. That's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that's the 750 sport. Absolutely stunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His is um is completely unrestored. I mean, sort of, you know, really? not quite a barn fine, but it's he's he hasn't restored it because it's original and still. Still pretty good. I mean, the frame is a bit now, now a bit more pink than red. It has to be said, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, it it's beautiful. I mean, it's it's just a the lines on it are stunning. I mean, just stunning. There's something about the 750 Sport. I like the America, but it's not. It, everything got square around there, and those beautiful curves. Yes. Of that wonderful sport. I I don't know. There's just something to me. Some things are just right. Yeah. And that engine, a lot of people don't know the history of MVs. Colombo, who designed the Ferrari GTO motor, was involved in designing the cylinder head on that. It's got a, and, and the, he also designed the Alpha 8C. Now, the 8C, the last one to sell, went for $20 million. So there's kind of almost half an Alpha 8C motor in. Wow. Um, it's quite something, that MV. Um, yeah. Very special. And we gear-driven cams at that point in time. Um, something else. Absolutely something else. I love it. Um, and old Bevel Drive Ducatis, I love those. Yes. Yeah. And we restore old Z900, CBXs, all of this stuff. You know, that's... Really? Yeah, that's what we do time that's terrific yeah my friend daniel has a uh a 750 h2 yeah the original widow maker but he's got one in every year and every color oh really so he's got the full set and he's just he's literally just completed the same thing with the uh with the z9 or as we call them the z9s in america yeah yeah so he's got the full set all eight of them from uh 73 through 76 they started in 72 it was a 73 model, but it started in 72. You are correct. And those were very different from the January 73, which was, they all started, I mean, I think they started, they arrived in June 72, and they were 73 models. But <clears throat> there's quite a few differences between the 72 and the 73. And then you've got the first 1,200 of the 72s. They're very different. They've got totally different cylinder head, and a lot of other things going on. You're a lot more knowledgeable than I, than I think, I, I, certainly more than I am, but I think even more than Daniel. They all started in the States. They were made in America. So, so they didn't come to Europe in 72. They came in January 73. I mean, you're talking about the original one with the big teardrop you know, paint job that's now been reprised with the RS. Yeah, all the 72s were root beer brown with orange. Yes. That metallic root beer and orange. Yeah, 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 beautiful. You wouldn't find a green 72, it didn't exist. Okay. They bought that out in January 73. Okay. Yeah, and getting them right. You see, they have coded date stamps on the wheel rims, on lots of different components on the bike. And you want those date stamps to be the same as the month and year of the production of your bike. Okay. Otherwise, it's not correct, you know. And, yeah, sure. Um, we sort of got involved with the investment grade motorcycles. So that this sort of stuff's kind of critical. Oh, no, very critical. A couple of them are definitely going to need a bit of TLC, that's for sure. Yeah. 
they all do. One of my biggest problems is other people's restorations. We've had Ducatis by the best in Europe where people have paid them um, 45,000, 60,000 euros to restore a bike. I've had to totally re-restore the whole thing. It's a mess. Because all the, all the numbers are missing and all of that stuff. Well, no, not even that. It's things like you start it up, it won't run right, so you go, oh, okay, yeah, stale fuel. So you empty everything out and then you, well, hang on, wait, 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 wait. Let's check the valve clearances. You open up the engine and this is an engine they've completely rebuilt. The valve seat was chemical metal. It was epoxy chemical metal. How could chemical metal even work? I mean, that, that would run for about 30 seconds and then die, wouldn't it? The guy had ridden 15 kilometers on it, the previous owner, had ridden 15 kilometers on it like that. And that was about as far as it would go, I would think. Well, it, it ran, it just ran really bad. It sort of felt like, oh, it's carburation. You know, it's like, we can sort this. Oh. So anyway, it was like, right, heads off. We found the rear cylinder was completely, it had big chunks out of the combustion chamber. We could save that. It's been a nightmare. And then um, we removed the petrol tank and they hadn't put any of the special rubbers that protect all the paint. So all the paint was scratched, but all over the place. And there were chips and scratches everywhere. And it was all starting oh. to corrode. I mean, it looked nice when it was all together, but it wouldn't run properly. The electrics would just, you had to rewire the whole bike. So the frame had to come off. And then you realized every body panel, it's a, 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 an orange, it's a 750 Sport. Every panel was a slightly different color. So we had to take all oh. the bodywork back to the bare substrata. And then it was really bad. It had been badly filled and really poor work. And then you realize when you took the rear rub, mud guard off, they're fiberglass, it had right. split. And you're going, like, why is it split? When you went to put it back in and you realized it was just wrong. They bought a replica one, it was just wrong. So we had an original one there with an original rear mudguard. So we made our own mold and it fitted beautifully. So we had to make the rear mudguard. Right. It, loads of parts we had to make for the bike. And it's like, I think there are a lot of, you know, restoration companies out there that, that, that will sort of, tizzy something up and make it look pretty um so the owner's like oh that's you know that looks pretty good um but the truth is it's not particularly correct and there's a whole bunch of stuff if you look closely it doesn't quite match yeah but like you say you you guys are clearly at sort of investment grade stuff where everything you've got the knowledge and the and the, the attention to detail yeah that's great that's good for you so so your business is the motorcycle broker is is that correct that's right. Yeah. So we source, we source investment grade bikes. So we start with the right bike for customers and we charge them a fixed price for the bike. So we'll find them the bike, which has got the right, right wheel rims and everything. And usually we're going to have to change our business model a bit because prices have gone up so much. The cost of materials gone up. Um, Brexit's hit Britain really hard. Um, and you know, we're suddenly paying like 60% on a lot of stuff when we're bringing it in the country. Loads of stuff we can no longer source from Europe because customs is just ground to a halt. So you have to kind of make it here. I mean, it's, it's really, there's a lot of friction in this country now. So we're now more 
looking for bikes to restore than buying other people's restorations because it's just I, I think a lot of it is also the customer's fault because they go look you know your your restoration is going to be 75,000 euros and they go well can't you do it cheaper I can't pay that well so they go, all right um well all right we, we'll do it for 60,000 so that what they're saying is, can you cut corners? Can you just reduce the quality down? Of course. Because you still have to pay the same people, the same wages, and you've got to buy the materials. Of course. So, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're finding it easier to buy, pay less for a bike where everything's there, it's right, or where it's just very tired and we'll just, go to town on it because we're not having to source all these impossible parts. That makes perfect sense. Better to start with something that at least is correct and needs fixing yeah. rather than start with something that's got a whole bunch of stuff wrong with it. And you've then got to try and undo the crap that somebody else has done. Yeah. I, I totally get it. Yeah. It's a, the problem is the, the problem is the rarity of the originals. It, that's got to be a problem, isn't it? Even 916 now, SPs. Um, they've got little date stamps inside the fairings. So right. if you've got a 94 bike with 97 body panels, it ain't right. You've got to find those 94 body panels. Right. You can easily pay over £5,000 for the correct fairing panels. And then you've got to take them back to the bare substrate to repair them and repaint them because the reds will all be wrong. And you, you've got to, there's so much to do. And we go to a lot of trouble to make our paint, which is modern 2K look like the original factory paint. So with the old Zs, we make it look like cellulose, but it isn't, but it's very difficult and it's really time consuming to do. Wow. I was going to ask you about the paint. Yeah. Modern paint looks so good, you know, by comparison. But it doesn't look like it did. And the colors aren't the same. Yeah, our candy colors now aren't the same as the original candy colors. No, no. So for example, we, we got an old Ian Falloon. He, he writes all these books on Ducatis. Right. It's an unrestored Ducati GT750. And it's a candy sort of bronzy orange over silver. And when they sprayed them at the factory, they didn't put any lacquer over the top. So it was just the ink sprayed over silver. Oh, paint. <laughs> and it's an amazing one. It's got pearl in it. It's got, I mean, it's... It's a really amazing paint. It really changes in the light. Sure. And it's bronze and black with a hand-painted pinstripe in the Z across it. And my painter, he's in-house. He does the pinstripes all by hand. And we managed to find a bit on this old Ian Falloon bike where the paint hadn't really faded. We had to work out it would be a little bit darker than what was there because it was 1974 paint but trying to get the pearl to suspend in the candy and to get that color correct and to get it to change and to get the color match, it took 130 attempts where you're spraying 100 milliliters of paint each time on a spray out card, on an aluminum spray out card to get that match. Wow. Now, each of those bikes anyway, because it's candy would have been different. Every time you pass it with the spray gun, it gets darker because it's like an ink. So each Ducati of that era would be a slightly different color. 
because they might make it up with more thinners or less thinners or whatever. What, what we've done is we've taken a snapshot of one bike and gone that color is what we use now because we know that it's a real color from that time. It's not, and if you put our bikes next to others, they just don't have that authentic feel. The others don't. And the color's just that bit too modern, bit too shiny. It has no orange peel in it. I mean, modern paints don't give you an orange peel. They don't pinch up. We go to a lot of trouble to make them pinch up. And then we've got a special polishing process that doesn't allow it to shine, that knocks the shine out, but you can't do too much polishing. Otherwise you lose the orange peel. It's a real wow. art, wow. you know, and you have to get it dead right. I mean, that's why Jack Armstrong loves us. He, he, he yeah. He goes like, oh my God, you're artists. And it, and it is, it's a form of art. Oh, definitely. This is this is rolling sculpture that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. This is going, you know, if you want to know what these bikes were like back then, here's a time machine. Bang, there you go. It's as close as you'll ever get to a brand new 900 SS from the factory. But also we set them up. Right. I mean, people ride our CBXs and go, Jesus Christ, I scared the living daylights out of me. I didn't know it was so fast. And it's like, <laughs> no, they were fast in the day. Right. And they're like, but I've ridden them from loads of other shops. And it's like, yeah, because nobody can be bothered to learn how to do the carbs. Nobody can be bothered to do the valve shims on them. Nobody can be bothered to change the cam chain tension. And now they're 40 years old and falling to pieces. You know, the bike won't run. And usually it's got loads of electrical force. And because it's electronic ignition, it's sort of, it will be, you won't notice, but it will be just missing on a few cylinders as you're putting the power on. And it's just, you've got to take those connectors to pieces and clean them. It's hugely time consuming, but clean them out right. Is there corrosion in there? Is the pin broken? Is it making contact? And nearly every CBX, when I go to a certain connector, I'll go, that would never run right because of that connector. The, the spark isn't hitting it properly. And then you do that and suddenly, but you have to do all the other things first to feel it. And ours will tick over at 800 revs per minute. Beautiful. And they start on the button just like, start up. Um, our, our 900 SS is from hot or cold. First, second kick every time, uh, cold in between hot and cold, they'll just start. And it, they, the reason others don't is they're not done right. It, it just hasn't been set up right. How do you deal with things like, you know, the modern fuel? Oh, no, that is a big problem. In America, we've got 10 or even 15% ethanol, which is just horrible. I mean, just horrible. We use the high octane. We use a high octane, the super unleaded. And what we do is we put in a fuel stabilizer and the only one that works is Honda Pro. So we put that in and you make sure that bike started up every two weeks. Right. And as much as possible, get it under load, get out and get it warm and start putting some revs through it. And it just clears everything. It's lovely. Yeah. If you're going to sort of go to it after eight months, even with fuel stabler in, uh, stabilizer in, it might work, but it might, it might, need the carbs doing and we just stay on top of it yeah 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 i, I definitely see it um daniel actually puts uh keeps several uh drums of vp racing fuel 
yeah, uh, which is ethanol free and high octane, very pure stuff. And he just keeps that. He's got an amazing collection of Nortons. I'm not sure how many, but I guess he's probably up to about 50 different Nortons. He's really a Norton guy. Really? And a lot of the Nortons had um, composite tanks and uh, I guess, you know, fiberglass tanks. And oh, God, yeah. No, I mean, it just it eats. Well, and the ethanol is just eating out and his tanks are starting to bubble from the inside, the ones that haven't been sealed. And, oh, it's just... Oh, I've got old bull tacos where it's just eaten through the tank, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it was in the end. It's just a whole lot easier just to keep the uh, the race fuel and just these drums of race fuel and and run those. And then the, and the bikes run well on it. They run really nice. But clearly, what you guys are doing is absolute art. I, I love it. I love it. So so how long have have you uh, you been in business? I mean, when did you start doing all this? I guess we go back forty five years. You know, I, well, I'm fifty eight now. Um, I built my first bike when I was 12 and sold it at a profit. I taught myself to build a bike. And I, at 14, I was ended up working in a garage on the weekends, rebuilding old Alpha motors. And I started off servicing and was rapidly rebuilding motors. And then, you know, all, all the way through when, when I was 18, uh, no, how old was I? I was 20 when I went to drama college. I'd always been buying and selling bikes. Right. And when I went to drama college, I could buy a bike in loot one week, this newspaper in, that, that had just come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were dirt cheap there. Um, you know, it was just free ads. So you go and buy an XS 1100 for like 800, uh, 400 pounds. And then right. you'd put a tire on some brake pads, which cost 20 quid. And you'd put it for 800 in motorcycle news the next week or 900. And, and they take your arm off, they come and give you 800 quid. You know, back then it was a lot of money. You're on 400 pounds a week. Right. And my rent was never more than 50 pounds a week in central London. <laughs> right. So it was, it was kind of good money. And then I started, um, while I was an actor, you didn't get paid doing fringe. So I paid my way a lot by buying and selling bikes like that. Then I started buying Harleys from America and exporting them into, from here. I bring them in here and then send them on to Spain. Oh, no. Because uh, I grew up in Spain. The Spanish market was really, Spain had joined the EU and it was, it was the fastest growing economy in Europe. And then when the single market started in 93, you couldn't get above 100,000 a year before then. Within a year, I was doing 1.2 million a year in Harleys. Wow. And then I was doing BMWs 30 a month, new all over Europe, in, into Belgium, all over. And then by 97, I was doing all forward ordering containers of Honda, Suzuki, Yamaha, Kawasaki in the grey market. And I was um, turning over seven and a half million a year and supplying the biggest people in the UK, like PK. And then Honda sued everyone. And, you know, it went on and on like that. <laughs> um, I did all marketing at, at Taljet scooters and um, put the scooter in the Jamie Oliver series for Naked Chef and things. And I built bikes in China in 99 to 2004. And I was getting better quality in China than Honda can get today, because I used all the courier circuits in London as my R&D. If it lasted six months on a courier circuit, it was 
great, you know. <laughs> and I went out there and built the bikes with them. I go like that, that that's no good. Let's go more dollar, more dollar. And I'm like, that's fine, that's all right, more dollar. Just get me, a, you know, I need it more good. And uh, we had pizza delivery bikes with heated top boxes and all sorts, you know. And I, I got involved with venture capitalists, so that went by the by. And then I, I've been, I've always been trading classics. I've always loved them. I, I mean, my customers, when I was selling new bikes into Europe and Harleys, I, I'd go into some of my dealers' places and it's like, you've got an MV Augusta, America. And you go, how do you know what that is? And I was like, I love them, you know. <laughs> and they go, oh, come, come with me. And they're, they're sort of show me these beautiful one of them had Mike Baldwin's old RGV RG500 Suzuki that I sold for him I just loved all this stuff you know and he's like and he said to me can you get me an MV and I said yeah I'll find you an MV I found him a really good MV and he bought that and um I'd always been into Z1 so I bought him bought a, a nice Z1 for him right you know, he, he just, and then then when I was out there in 2004 in Belgium, he said, oh, you like this. And it was a CB750 K6, okay. the orange, bright sunburst orange, candy orange. Yeah. And it was all original, beautiful, but I mean, mint. It, it had 1,700 miles from it. Wow. I said, oh, that's nice. Are you selling it? And he said, yeah, yeah. Um, 1700 euros which back then was about a thousand pounds so i bought that back over and i sold it for two grand right in weeks but i, I made sure it had photos of it and somebody bought it and then i was buying beautiful rd400s mint for like 800 pounds because <laughs> there were loads of them loads of people had them on mainland europe and they hadn't butchered them in britain everyone pulled off the airbox threw it away put on expansion pipes they kept them absolutely standard and they were they all had garages so they're in really good condition oh wow and i started bringing these in and it, you know it went from there <laughs> and then people came to me and said look what bikes do you think will go up and i was like well this definitely let's say why and I started the motorcycle broker when I moved to Devon. I sold my place in London, moved to Devon. And I've been going since about 2013, doing the motorcycle broker full on. And, um, you know, um, yeah, I, I looked at the trash that was in the market. There's a lot of it. Oh, it's just crap. All the shiny shit that's just wrong. <laughs> Powder coated frames and all that stuff. And I just said, look, you know, these bikes, they're not investment grade. And people are like, well, you just ride them. They're not an investment. And I'm like, really? And I, I said, I mean, when was it? In, in 2004, I bought a Honda Sankos for £3,000. It was immaculate. Wow. £3,000. For a proper Sankos now, you're looking at £50,000. Right, yeah. So um, otherwise, you're buying junk, stuff that will never be right. Yeah. So... You know, and I said to people in, in, I think I wrote a piece in 2014 saying, oh, the sandcastle will go to 30,000 by 2020. And I got slagged off somewhere. <laughs> and lo and behold. It turns out you were actually being conservative. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the same with all of them. It's like I was saying, you know, oh, um, 916 SPs, there'll be 25,000 by 2020. And lo and behold, they were, they were 
they were over 25. Right. And the foggy reps were like 45. Um, and, you know, people were saying, you're mad. And in, in I remember exporting them to Holland in 2008. And I was buying foggy reps and 996 SPs and 916 SPs, really nice ones, for £3,000 back then. Right. And, you know, now a, a, a proper 916 SP, you've got to pay 35 grand for the right one from the right person where it's right. How long is it before every Ferrari F40 owner goes, I've got to have a Ducati 916 SP? It's ridiculous. I've got the Ferrari. <laughs> That's the Ferrari F40 of motorcycle. I need to have it. By which point, you know, when that happens, which will probably could be 10, 15 years, you're looking at three four, five hundred thousand pounds for that bike. It'll go to 30%, 40% of the value of an F40, which at today's price is three, four hundred thousand. You know, you're looking at a million quid for a proper F40. So, you know, these bikes are really undervalued. They've got a long way to go. And of course, the profits are all tax-free in Britain. So, and they go up quicker than the pension. So lots of people are, and everybody thinks these people are, putting them in glass cases, nothing could be further from the truth, you know, because they come to us and I go, well, go and ride it. And they're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to ride it. I'm like, well, ride it around the yard. Go on. Ride it. <laughs> I used to have a license. So I'm like, there's a crash out. Go up the road. And they come back and they go, Jesus, that's amazing. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm insuring it. I'm riding it, you know. And, and I'll bring it back for servicing and they love it. They, they go like, I didn't realize these bikes were so good. And they, yeah, yeah, they were, they were good. That's why they're iconic. It's only once you ride them, you get the picture. Yeah. Um, there's a few, there one or two people who are like, oh, my, my wife won't let me ride. Yeah. But yeah, we're converting a lot of people to it. And, you know, um, Britain was a motorcycling nation. Well, a lot of the world was between 1970 and 83. When they what killed it off was bringing in the two part test. Yes, and the one two the one two five limit and all of that stuff. And the reason it happened was because the advent of British of Japanese bikes that became reliable, so they could you could jump on your bike and go to work. Yep. So at sixteen, you you could go and get HP. You could do an apprenticeship, and you go and get higher purchase and pay for your fizzy. It would be cheaper than a bus ticket and it would get you in and out of work at 16. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, at 17, your pay went up a little and you go, oh, uh, and your parents would go, oh, get you off that smelly, awful motorbike. Let's get you in the car. And then it's like, oh, my God, we can't afford the car insurance. That won't work. <laughs> it goes down when you're 21. <laughs> so the kid would go, well, I'll, I'll not exchange it for an RD250. They get an RD250. Then they pass their test. Yeah. And they all wanted a Z1 or a CB750 and, you know, and, and then when they were 21, they probably met their first wife and got their car license and had their first kids and forgot about the bike. But in Britain, between 1975 and 83, we were selling, and this, was, this happened globally because of this phenomenon of higher purchase and reliable Japanese bikes. In Britain, we were selling 225,000 to 315,000 new bikes a year. So including used, that's easily a million bikes a year, every year. Right. In Britain alone, which is a very small market. And that went on all, all through Europe. It went on in Australia, went on in 
America, Japan, everywhere. And they couldn't make the bikes fast enough. And the super bikes were very rare. The Japanese super bikes and the Italian super bikes, they're very, very rare when they were new. And then in, by, from, in 1983, it kind of got killed dead. And by 1994, we were selling 44,000 new bikes a year in Britain until we started doing the grey market. And by 2000, we were at 100,000 bikes a year. And then Honda sued everyone because they didn't want everyone grey marketing once we'd grown the market. And, and of course, in the mid 80s, well, in, in about 88, it was 85 when Harley bought out the Evo. And suddenly Harley were reliable. And, you know, they, they had some cool designs, the fat boy, the heritage, Softail Customs, Springer, they were good designs. And suddenly there was a lifestyle motorcycle. Yeah, for sure. You know, they grew into a lifestyle brand um, very, very quickly. They were the first ones to do it. And it was because they had the reliability of the Evo, that Alley engine made them reliable and then of course you had triumph come up and ducati and and everybody you know i i remember when harley first started selling aftershave and i was selling a lot of harleys at first just oh, for god's sake what's harley <laughs> davidson aftershave what's wrong with you you know get real but actually they were right yeah. they they were right you know it was a lifestyle brand and BMW as well, they became a lifestyle brand. So you have a lot of these companies that have kind of managed to achieve it and they've really made motorcycling a leisure sport rather than transport, but it all started out as transport. It was all cheap transport for people. Um, really until they car insurance came down when they were 21. But that's still in people's bloods. They're, they're now in their 50s. I'm 58, you know. A lot of people are my age now. Kids have left home and they're going, uh, there's a lot of money looking for a home. They can't put it in the bank because when the banks go down, they're going to lose it. They need assets. So classic cars, this is why they've gone up. Art's gone through the roof. Um, and so they're looking for a home for their money. And, and motorcycles, there's no left or right hand drive like there was with the cars you move them around easily from country to country um you know but they're about 15 years behind the cars but they're they're slowly coming up so you can see where it's going to go um and china's coming into the market as well that's the biggest nation of motorcyclists in the world 20 million new bikes a year and they get the collectibles market so you're going to see you know, it's inevitable. It's inevitable what's going to happen. It's quite interesting listening to you sort of recount that because I absolutely live that. I'm about uh, I'm give or, I'm about six years older than you, so I I came out of school in you know '76, and I grew up right in that period, straight onto motorcycles, and you know started off with a you know uh, actually with a Honda ninety, but quickly graduated to a to a 250 and 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 you know and then suzuki's and water buffaloes and z1s and the whole thing yeah that's it cbx's that was it that was that was my history and then finally the the big game changer just before i came to america actually was 85 85 86 when the jixer came out and the first jixers came out 
you know, starting off with a 750 and 85. It was like a two-stroke, wasn't it? No, no, no. The jigs the jig are the oil-cooled four-stroke. Four no, I, I know what you mean, but the 750, uh, what I mean by it was like a two-stroke, was it had this mad power back. When you hit 5,000 revs, it went mental like a two-stroke. Yeah. And then it would go up again when it hit seven and again when it hit a nine, right up to the 11,500 rev limiter. And it was just bonkers. Yeah, I only rode the, the 750 a couple of times. One of my friends had one. I bought an 87 model, uh, Jixer 1100, brand new. They just come out. Yeah. I went for the 1100 and... I love that bike. I had a couple of years on that, and then I ended up coming to America. That, so that was obviously a big quantum leap, the the Gixxers in 85, when those first came out. I know. I, I mean, it, it was the GPZ 900 the year before as well. Yeah, it was when that was when the Japanese really first started to figure out that it might be better to start making things sort of smaller and lighter weight and, and, and powerful um, rather than just sort of bigger and beefier. And, and less conservative. I mean, they were always very conservative. Like, they wouldn't sell a bike yeah. that had ace bars or clip-ons on. They wouldn't sell a bike that had full fairing on. Yeah. I guess the Phil Reed replica was the first one, that Honda CB750. It was a Phil Reed replica, limited edition. Yeah, yeah. And that came out. And then, of course, Ducati won the Isle of Man and did the, the Mike Hellwood replica. But, you know, I, I think they watched very carefully to see is there really a market for full for race reps and they sold very well you know they went like well hang on because it was mostly in britain people were customizing their bikes to be like race replicas yeah um the rest of europe was much more conservative and didn't mess with their bikes they just wanted them to work properly and of course once you start tuning the hell out of them and interfering with them it, it usually ruins them it suddenly took a quantum leap and you had the VF1000R. That was a big change when that came out. Yeah, and the CB1100R. Yeah. Um, we got Ron Haslam's World Championship win. Oh, I love that bike. I got to ride one of those one time. What a magical machine that was. Really good bike, really good. And very rideable, yeah. but had a lot of power. Yeah, fantastic bike. Yeah, amazing machines. And, and then, of course, you, after, after the Gixxer 11, then you had the Fireblade, which tore it all up. Yeah. And within probably eight, nine months of the Fireblade, 916. <laughs> and that was it. Nothing would be the same again, you know. And um, it, it was sort of, a, I guess, it was around the 999R that all the Ducatis and all these bikes became very, I guess, digital is all you could say. You know, there wasn't that um, feedback. Everything was so sanitized out. And they're very, very digital bikes. Um, and uh, insane amounts of that. You know, you can go and buy, walk into any dealer and what's a Fireblade now? 200 horsepower or so? I don't yeah, know. something I mean, like that. How can you use that on the road? It's pointless. I find it fascinating. Fascinating talking about the history, but talking about special bikes, you're, I guess, helping to helping Jack Armstrong sell his cosmic starship. We are, yeah. And I, and funny enough, I've I've been passionate about the motorcycler's art for a long time, and I've always watched it very carefully. And I sell. Are you aware of Alan Milliard? Yeah, I know Alan Milliard very well. In fact, 
Daniel and I are good friends with Alan Milliard, and Daniel has the very first four-cylinder 758 that Alan built. Oh, right. When he sells bikes now, he sells them through me. Right. And I'm kind of putting him out there as an artist. I interviewed him back in 2016. I've got this page, the Motorcycle is Art. And there's a lovely interview I did with Alan where he says, you know, look, I, I, I see myself like as an artist. I, I'm, I'm a sculptor and motorcycles are my medium. Yeah, I'd agree. And that's very much how he is. And I think his work, there's a very limited number of them. And, you know, they need to be put out. He's got a section of the Barber Museum there. And he's recognising for what it is. And if he chooses to sell something, people need to pay for it. And they need to understand what they're, what they're getting into. It's not just a motorcycle. It is, but it's something else as well. As I was building that page, I met Jack. And Jack said, look, would you sell a Cosmic Harley for me? And we, got, we really got on really well. He's a really nice guy, isn't he? Really good guy. He's a character. He's great. Yeah, I loved his energy. I mean, I don't know him well. I talked to him the other day for the first time, but just the energy that comes off him is so positive. And yeah, loved him to death. He's a great guy. He's interesting. And, uh, you know, his stories of, of these mad years. It was a particular time <laughs> that he landed on his feet, landed bang in New York at the right moment. Day three meets Andy Warhol. Warhol goes, you're an artist, I like you. And they become friends. And then he's sat in a restaurant with Led Zeppelin's manager who says, oh, I need a painting. And he goes, well, I've got one in the back of the car, $1,000. And he goes, yeah, all right then. <laughs> you know, and um, he ends up teaching um, Michael Jackson and David Bowie how to paint abstract art. Yeah. And he went through this time that really, I think, tailed off as every time has its time and then it dies it, it, a bit like you know the 60s had to come to an end and, and then everything plateaus for a bit and then something else had punk happened you know but there's big lull in between and jack had a very good long run warhol died in 87 so he had a good seven years of partying great clubs earning good money, doing what he loves, having a wild time meeting the most famous of the famous on a daily basis and hanging out with them. And I think just having a ball. And then in 88, Basquiat died. And I think the wheels had started to fall off there. And what actually was happening was the rave scene was starting to come because everyone was leaving the clubs and the rave scene was starting. And it was something different. And it was, you know, Warhol had died, Basquiat had died. Everything, nothing was really the same. And if you're on that bus, that bus had come to the end of the line. So he left New York and was, I, I think, sort of in the wilderness for a bit, not knowing quite what to do. And then he got his art and burnt it all. And went, I'm going to create something new. I'm going to do something new. And it was a really bold move. That's really courageous to do that. I mean, clearly he underwent a complete epiphany somehow. I mean, and that's that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. And it, it takes courage. And it does. 
you know, it was obviously very dark times as well. And and then yeah. from that, you know, his intention was to create something new. He created this form of abstract art that he does, Cosmic X. And like he says, it's this energy just coming through it. And yeah. he paints in daylight. And he does his thing. And, it, and people got it. A lot of people went, I, I like your work, you know. And over the years, and then, uh, of course, you know, in 85, he's, he's, Warhol was on the back of his bike. Warhol, in, in a lot of his art, suddenly motorcycles start appearing from obviously going on the back of Jack's bike. And, you know, he, he said to him in 85, oh, what, what are you going to do? And he said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a million dollar Harley. He goes, oh, wow, that's great. Warhol says to him, you're the last wizard of art. Which is a lovely thing to say, and he created that painting later, The Last Wizard. And, you know, 25 years later, he realised that dream by buying that V-Rod. And he bought a V-Rod because it's an outlandish bike. It's, it's a breakaway from the, you know, he could have picked a fat boy or a shovelhead or any kind of Harley Davidson. It would have been the million dollar Harley, but he didn't. He said, let's get the most outlandish, like a starship that's, way out there what do they do all right v-rod you know definitely the futuristic side of harley without a doubt yeah it's like i was saying to jack we had a long conversation you know if you had two paintings um the sunflowers by van gogh they're identical you can't tell them apart at all but one is a forgery and one's the van gogh why is the forgery not worth a great deal but the van gogh worth that much more it's story context and story provenance provenance but what what is provenance it's story yeah yeah um, when when van gogh cut off his ear had he done that self-portrait perfectly without cutting off his ear and painted his ear perfectly would that painting be worth as much as him having cut his ear off and been all bandaged I don't think it would. Um, it would just, have, and, and if he had other self-portraits, it would be worth sort of like other good self-portraits. But that has a different value because of this context, this story, this whole thing that goes with it. And once you look at Jack's work in context, and you look at that bike in context, so when you put that bike with the painting Warhol Naked and The Last Wizard, I remember seeing a photo at Bartels where the bike was surrounded by his paintings. Right. And it, it gives it this really big context. And I, th I think it's fascinating. And I think the bike's amazing. It, it's an amazing piece. And is it sculpture or is it a painting? Is it a rolling Jack Armstrong painting? It's a wonderful piece. And Jack and I were talking the other day about how you know, the art world's quite snotty about anything automotive. Yeah, right. And actually, it's ahead of the curve to buy into the automotive because it's so rare. Yeah. Warhol did less automotive work than he did non-automotive. Jack Armstrong only did one cosmic starship Harley. Right. He's done 100 paintings. So, you know, that, that thing is a thing of real beauty and power in its own right. And it's, it, it was, the minute it was created, the world's most expensive Harley Davidson, the world's most expensive motorcycle. 
It's now been bought, swapped for a painting, which was of massive value, making it even more valuable. Um, I'm still trying to find out, Damien Hurst painted a heart. I'm trying to find out what it sold for, but I don't think it was anything like what Jack sold for. Really, that's interesting. It, to me, it's all about energy, really. It it's is. just that, that energy that, that Jack projects that somehow he's managed to imbue into this Harley. And that, I mean, I haven't seen the bike in person, but it, it uh, sort of jumps off the page to me. Yeah. So, yeah, it won't, it won't surprise me if that thing sells for really crazy money. It will do. It will. And I, I think it should be sold with those two paintings. Yeah. Because it, it breathes a lot more context into everything. You know, that, that's the full house. Sure. If you've got those two paintings and that motorcycle, that's the full house. And he's experimented with other canvases, you know, with, you know, boots and hats and all kinds of things. Yeah, and gloves. He's clearly got this sort of eclectic feel for things yeah so i i'm not an art guy at all i i don't understand art i don't pretend to i kind of you know i'm sort of i either sort of like it or i don't that that's exactly how i feel and i think i think that's what it's about though does it make you feel something i think the worst thing is if you look at a piece of art and you go i don't feel anything right exactly <laughs> exactly yeah love it love it or hate it as long as you feel something i think he's done his job yeah 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 no absolutely I, I love it. It's it's a very powerful piece of work. It is. And when you then understand the context behind it, 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 it grows. Right. And the story, the whole story behind it. Yeah. On a practical level, does it does it run? Yeah. Or did he pull all the insides out of it? And no, no, it's a running Harley. That that bike was ridden down the red carpet on the night of the original auction. Um, and it was flown in from 100 feet or so, he said, and, and then it rode down the red carpet. That's awesome. Yeah, it's obviously got stale fuel in it now, so it would need the injector sorting and, you know, which is all part of it. Yeah, that's not an issue. Um, so we need that all that stuff taken care of. But, yeah, that would run again. Uh, it want all the fluids drained out of it and then new fluids put in and it would be fine. That's great. Presumably it's got about half a mile on the odometer and, and that's it. Yeah, I don't think it's got any great mileage, but in a way, you know, it'd be great if someone bought that and put a few miles on it. I just rode it. Yeah, rode it a little, rode made it, it you know, yeah. it would really look like some, like it's been somewhere. Wouldn't it be cool if we could persuade Jack to ride it? Yeah, it would be great. <laughs> persuade Jack to, you know, ride it around Times Square or something. I mean, how cool. Do a burnout. <laughs> <laughs> Smack back tire, you know, but um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> and it would, it would really give it that feeling of having landed from space. It's a cosmic starship, and and it, it would, you know, have that. But it, it would be great if the owner would ride it, even if it was just to get some footage, doing fifty miles on it, yeah. get some footage of it, and and get some. Dust on it. A little bit, little bit of patina, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, it had that. They don't want to break the paint or anything because it's a painting. No, 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 of course not. You know, but to knock the shine off a little and yeah, film it and, and to film it being ridden and ride it back in, park it up next to those pieces of work. 
and it would be a wonderful thing you know for people to buy someone to buy it and to display it jack really wants that on display scene i agree yeah it'd be a, it's a tragedy to have it sit in a vault i mean that was uh, where it's been for a long time i'm not surprised he he really wanted it back that's why he wanted it back he wants it out there and you know i don't profess to know anything about art all i can say is i know what i like right and i i get enough of a story about things and I'm, I can put two and two together. You know, these paintings, they've sold for a lot of money and people like them and they get it, they get him. And it's like you said, the energy that he has. And then that, that comes through in his work. You, you just go like, wow, that is, something's really happening there. It's all got movement in it and leaping out of you. I agree, yeah. Well, I look forward to being able to follow up with you um at some point when the, when it's sold yeah definitely good talking to you you too thanks a lot bye-bye right bye-bye